This is a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. This morning is a difficult passage. It's difficult to preach on. Uh, It might be difficult to hear. So strap yourselves in. Here we go. James. Have you been enjoying James? We've been in James for a while. We're nearly at the end. We're into the last of the five chapters of this short letter. Short, but packs a real punch, doesn't it? James is often pretty strong, pretty direct. Uh, He's quite challenging, sometimes painfully practical. Um, I don't know if you felt that uh, in the last few weeks, that James can be painfully practical. Uh, He challenges not just what we think, but how we behave, how we live, how it works out in action. And yeah, it's, it's this kind of I think of it like this sort of tightly woven parcel of wisdom. He kind of circles back around on a bunch of different themes and ideas and and approaches things from a different angle a few different times. I had to read it over and over and over when we were preparing for this series to try and work out, like, what's the structure here? Where do you break it up into bite-sized pieces? And so, I think we need a little recap before I read this morning's passage, just to kind of get us in the zone of where we've... what what got us to chapter 5. We're going to start back in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 6, James quotes uh, this key verse uh, from the book of Proverbs, an old book of wisdom, that says, God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. And that kind of gets him moving in this direction. Uh, And so, you know, in verse 7, he tells us we need to submit ourselves to God. In verse 8, he says we need to wash our hands and purify our hearts. In verse 8, he says we need to grieve and mourn and wail. In verse 9, oh, that's 9. And in 10, he says we need to humble ourselves before the Lord. It's this kind of, as I said, tightly woven bit of wisdom. Uh, There's a lot in there. Um, We unpacked it a few weeks ago, so if you missed that one, catch up on YouTube uh, or on the podcast. And then the the overflow of that kind of life posture of humility, of submitting to God, of of saying sorry to God and coming to Him in humility, is some practicalities. Don't slander your neighbour, don't slander your neighbour, don't judge your neighbour, don't put yourself above them and look down on other people, because that's not humility, is it? And then he says, he goes on to talk about making plans uh, and how you kind of think about yourself and your life and your life goal and your plans and things like that. And he says, don't do that planning without thinking of God, because that's not humility either. And then that gets us to this in chapter 5. He says, now listen and he gets going on this kind of theme of wealth, of being rich. Uh, And it's a very strongly worded passage. But I thought we'd just start, I've done a little sneaky, and I've snuck in a verse from chapter 4, because the verse numbers and the chapter numbers 
were not written by James. He didn't put a break here. Some scribe came along hundreds of years later and put a break here. Uh, if you've got a Bible like mine that has little headings, they might have even put a heading here. But disregard all of that. We're going to start in 4 verse 17. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Told you it was strongly worded. I feel like James is pretty harsh, and then he gets to the rich people, and he just goes into another stratosphere of harshness. It is strongly worded. He's speaking to rich people. I wonder if you think of yourself as a rich person. It's kind of hard to know, isn't it? What do you do with that? Probably, considering the tone of this passage, you would like to think that you don't fall into this category. That'd be good, wouldn't it? Because uh, the tone is strong. It's kind of fire and brimstone style preaching, isn't it? Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. The corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Like, isn't it fun? Um, unless you think it applies to you and then it is not fun at all. Why is James speaking this way? Why is he using such a harsh can I say judgmental tone? I want us to be careful this morning, I want me to be careful this morning as I preach, to not, in, in trying to explain what James is saying and what all these things mean, to not sort of sanitize the tone that he's using by giving it an explanation. I think that it's really intentional. I think that James is not just ranting, I think he's trying to get under some people's skin. I think he's trying to get an emotional reaction. And I think there's a temptation when you go to explain something that you remove the emotion from it in doing the explaining. So we're going to try to keep the emotion present because I think some of the meaning is in that and not in the intellectual content. Do you know what I mean? All right. So, rich people. We need to do a bit of history. When James says, listen, you rich people, well, I put it in bold there, you can't miss it. What does he have in his head? What does he mean by that word, rich people? We need to kind of understand that first. Uh, so, I've got a very simple, simplified diagram of what Roman society looks like if you look at kind of socioeconomics. Uh, you kind of have these five categories of people 
in Roman society, in the world that James lived in, in the water that he swims in and that his readers that he's writing this letter to swim in. They have slaves, they're kind of on the bottom rung, Uh, they have no rights, they have no freedoms, Uh, they have almost no personal ownership of anything, in fact they are owned by someone else and they have no power. Some slaves are well-educated, have great skills, are well-trained, are probably more well-educated than some of the categories that are higher than them in the social pecking order, but they have no power uh, and no rights and no freedoms. The next step up are the labourers. These people would not have been Roman citizens, so they wouldn't have many rights either. They have very little personal ownership of anything apart from the clothes they're standing up in, and they work kind of paycheck to paycheck, day. and and when I say paycheck, you get paid daily. So if they work on a Tuesday, they get paid on Tuesday enough to get enough food to eat on Wednesday, and if they don't work on Wednesday, they don't eat on Thursday. Like it's that level. It's right on the edge. Uh, And then the next step up, are the kind of, I'm I'm calling it working class, that's not what the Romans would have called it, but I think that helps us to kind of get our heads around it. So these people uh, would occasionally be Roman citizens, but not necessarily. It kind of depends on where you're born and who you know and stuff like that. So some of them would have kind of had some rights, I suppose, if they're in that category. They would have had varying amounts of kind of money and possessions and a house, a little bit of land maybe either owned by them as an individual or or owned by their family. So a family unit, like an extended family unit, would have one house on one little piece of land or one little house in a town with a little family business that would run out of the house. Uh, It depends if you're rural or urban, but there's a kind of equivalence to that. And yeah, they might own maybe one or two slaves at most, but yeah, they're not wealthy. They're not rich, they're not powerful, they're not influential. Uh, They might, if they're a little bit older, have some kind of local social power, for want of a better word for that. They'd be kind of respected in their local community, but not really what you call political power. And then there's a gap, which I've put there, wealth gap. There's this big, big, big gap, and then suddenly you get to, like, the rich people. Uh, You have these equites, landowners, merchants, entrepreneurs. Uh, These people would definitely be full Roman citizens. Uh, They would own significant amounts of land with multiple dwellings on it. Uh, They'd have plenty of money, lots of slaves. They'd be, you know, running a complicated money-making venture with lots of manpower under under their leadership. And they'd be kind of invited into various kind of circles of power uh, and have access to, to some of the, the levers of power on, on a kind of official basis. They'd be able to kind of act as they were above the law to a degree. If they did something where the victim was down here, they could probably pull the right strings, pay the right people and get away with that crime. So that's like We've suddenly hit this completely different paradigm. And then there's kind of the patricians uh, right at the very top. And this is like the nobility, the like the ruling families that have 
all the money and all the power. They, they might not always be as rich. Like some of these equites are like crazy rich and some of them just kind of have a lot of power but not quite as much money. Nobility sometimes does that, but sometimes not. They'd be mates with Caesar. They'd be, you know, right up there running the show. And these two, these two groups up here would be like 0.1% of the population in the Roman Empire. Like it's a tiny group of people with all of the power and a big wealth gap down to everyone else. So I've got this big question having done all that deep dive in the Roman history. And my big question is, who's James talking to? There are no, at this point, as far as we're aware in history, there are no Christians here. Christianity hasn't reached this upper echelon of society at this point. Everyone in all of James's churches are in these three categories under the wealth gap. So when he says, listen, you rich people... Who's listening? <laughs> None of these people are reading James's letter. So what is going on here? Like, when you actually kind of do a little bit of the deep dive into the historical context, you start to have more questions than answers, or at least I did this week. I've, I've read a whole bunch of commentaries, and the, the short answer is I'm not alone in asking these questions, and no one has good answers. Some people say, well, no, no, he's not actually addressing anyone in the letter. This is kind of this rhetorical technique that he's using to address the concept of wealthy people to the people who aren't wealthy, and it's kind of this rhetorical technique. And so he's speaking about them, but addressing it to them rhetorically. I guess that's an option. Those people seem to kind of go, not only is he speaking to rich people in general, but he's speaking to these kind of Jewish elites uh, the, the ruling class in Jerusalem. And, you know, it makes some sense. I can see where they're coming from there. They are the ones, after all, in verse 6, who condemned and murdered the innocent one, being Jesus. But, I don't know, that there's not quite enough in it there. Maybe, maybe he's speaking to Christians who aren't in that category but wish they were, who kind of aspire to wealth and power. And he's kind of calling them out and saying... You've got to get your hearts in the right place. I think that seems more likely, but it's still, like, why this tone? Why this energy? It's a mystery. So, I don't have an answer. But that doesn't mean that we can't continue with the sermon. <laughs> we can kind of hold those ideas there on the one hand and then see what we can kind of do for us. Because we don't live in this world, in this society, we, we have this thing called middle class. Raise your hand if you are middle class. Yeah, like we're all basically middle class. We all live here. Everyone in Roman society would have been poorer than us, except for the people who are much richer than us. Does that make sense? Like we're all, even, even the richest and the poorest person in this room, we all live in this space that the Romans didn't have. So what do we do with this text? It's not clear. We are rich, but we're not rich rich. We're not living in mansions. 
We don't own, well, maybe some of you own multiple properties. Uh, running a large, successful enterprise with many employees, most of whom are slaves. Moving in the right circles, pulling the levers of power, being above the law and able to kind of get away with almost anything. But I think what we actually need to do is what we often need to do when we read the Bible. Having understood these things, we then need to go a step deeper to look behind the words that James is using, to understand why James has such a problem with wealth in his day, and then consider how much of that do we need to be worried about in our own day and in our own hearts and in our own lives. Can we do that? Sorry, that was a long intro. There's a lot to get us to this point, but let's, let's, let's push through. All right, so here are some of the things he talks about. He talks about your wealth is rotted, moths have eaten your clothes, gold and silver are corroded, you've hoarded wealth. This is all an echo of a text that we can go and read in Matthew. It's an echo of the words of Jesus. I've got them up there. You might find them familiar. You might have heard them before. They're pretty super famous from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus talks about wealth, and he talks about money, and he talks about it being moth-eaten and rotting and corroding, and he warns people about hoarding. And so, yeah, I don't think James is quoting these words, They are definitely in his mind. He's got Jesus and Jesus' teaching on his mind. And he's sort of saying, look, the rich people are storing up treasures on earth because their hearts are devoted to their money. Their eyes are fixated on their wealth. They're earning more, they're owning more, they're protecting what they have. They're serving money instead of serving God. And this is like James 101. He's talking about how their hearts overflow into their actions. That's been our word of the year, hasn't it? And he's saying, if your heart is in your money, the overflow of that is going to be trouble. And it might not be immediate. In fact, in the immediate, in the short term, you'll live in luxury and self-indulgence. You'll be happy and healthy and wealthy and powerful. And James is saying, watch out. There's misery that is coming on you. All that wealth is going to rot. All the moths are going to eat your beautiful clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded because you are hoarding wealth without realizing this is the last days. There is a bigger story, and all this wealth is only making things worse for you in the bigger story. He then goes on to call out specifically the implications, not on themselves, because they're happy, they're wealthy, they're doing well, but there's implications for the people around them. And the people around us matter to God. He's concerned about the workers. He says, 
Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Now this, just take a second, we're going to go into the historical mode for one second, just once more. This is crazy. In James's world, this is a crazy thing to say. Because in James's world, there are slaves everywhere. It's like super-duper common, socially acceptable, expected, normalized. And here he is saying, if people work for you and you don't pay them wages, watch out. It kind of plants a seed uh, in Christian history, in church history. Words like this uh, that Christians over centuries continue to kind of live in this slave society, but it niggles. And it works away. And at some point, we realize that everyone is made in the image of God. And it is not right to deprive a worker of their wages. And actually, the seeds aren't just here in James. They go way back. People like the prophet Jeremiah or the prophet Malachi say things like this. Woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his own people work for nothing, not paying them for their labor. And Malachi says, so I will come to put you on trial. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice and do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. And this problem hasn't gone away. It, it works different, the system is different, but the problem is still here in our world today. Even here in Australia, there are millions of people in every corner of the world who are not being paid for the work they have to do. I'll give you some stats. There's a little pie graph of the distribution of victims of forced labor by subcategory, which is to say there are 25 million people in the world who are forced to work their job rather than being paid to work their job. You go to work every day, you expect a paycheck. These people, 25 million, go to work and know there is no paycheck coming. Of these, uh, about 4 million are victims of forced sexual exploitation. And we at MVBC support an organization called Zoe International that works to free people from that. And that's, that's really important. But actually this morning I kind of want to focus on these other victims of forced labor. Doing jobs, just ordinary jobs, but they're not paid to do them. Uh, I've got another graph. Uh, these are some of the kind of sectors of jobs. Uh, and I want to sort of pull your attention to a few of these particularly. This one, 4% here, which is mining and quarrying. Or this one here, wholesale and trade. Agriculture, forestries and fishing, manufacturing. You add all those together, it's a big chunk. These are sectors where products might not be from Australia initially, uh, but some part of the supply chain of the things that you and I buy down at Erin Affair or in your online shopping app, your mobile phone might have minerals that are mined by these people. 
Your clothes might be manufactured by these people. The coffee you drink might be picked in a field by some of these people. The car you drive, the solar panels on your roof, your lawnmower, your kids' toys, you name it. Some part in the supply chain might be right, right back in a field somewhere with the agricultural bit before the manufacturing bit has even been thought of. Some part might be sourced or produced by people who didn't get paid for their work. And this is how it works. I won't read the whole list. But these are the ways that people are forced or coerced into working for no pay. That is what it looks like to be a victim of modern-day slavery. Did you know this stuff? Some nods. Some people are like, oh, yeah, I think I've heard this stuff before. It's hard to listen to, isn't it? The wages you failed to pay the workers who mine the minerals in your phone are crying out against you. The wages you failed to pay the workers who sewed your T-shirt are crying out against you. The wages you failed to pay the workers who picked the cocoa beans in your chocolate bar are crying out against you. Can we do that? Eh, It's not quite the same, is it? I mean, I don't own the field where they're picking the cocoa beans. Like, I'm not the one enslaving these people. It's not my fault. I just buy the products from the companies. And the companies often don't even know because they buy the materials from a middleman who in turn buys them from the supplier, who in turn buys them from the source, and that's where the slavery is happening, and there's so many steps of removal. I'm pretty much immaterial. It's not my fault, right? Well... Yeah? Yes and no. I think actually the the real question to ask is to say, what can I do? I acknowledge with God that this is bad, that this is a systemic problem that I can't fix. Can we say that at least? (laughs) And acknowledging that it's bad and that we know about it gives us an opportunity to try and do something, anything, to make it better. To not just say, it's not my fault, and then bury our heads in the sand and pretend there's not a problem, or it's not our problem. I think God would want us to do more than that, at least. So my challenge this morning is to try to be part of the solution in some way, shape, or form. And the reason, if you need another reason, is this verse, which I snuck in this morning. If anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. And I am the bad guy who came here this morning and burst your bubble. Now you know the good you ought to do. So do it. Uh, I encourage you, Get online, do your own research. I've given you like three graphs this morning. (laughs) You could learn a lot more. You could know a lot more. Uh, You could understand 
what things particularly will make the most impact and the most difference on this issue. You might want to go to the Baptist World Aid website. They've got this amazing ethical fashion guide. Uh, it will tell you what are the better brands to buy your clothes from and what are the brands to avoid buying your clothes from. And you could kind of keep that in your back pocket when you go down to Erin Affair. You could cross-check when you're Googling and you get your Google shopping results. You could kind of open up in another tab your ethical shopping guide and compare and contrast and go, oh, I do like that jacket, but it got an F. I think I'll avoid that one. Or maybe, maybe uh, you want to just do this for your big purchases. Maybe start there. You know those things that you, you do research for anyway? You know those things that you, you're like, I'm going to buy a car, and you spend months researching and reading and going on different websites and reviews and asking people, just add a little bit of research time, you're doing the research anyway, to Google what are the more ethical car brands. Just add that in when you're doing your research anyway. Research not just what is the best product at the best price, but also what is the most ethical product which products make sure that all the workers the whole way down the supply chain are being paid fairly for their work. And yeah, if you do end up spending a little bit more than the cheapest brand and the best price that's on special this week, I think that's worth it. What do you think? And then, if that all sounds too hard, find that ethical friend of yours who's always banging on about this stuff and ask them their advice, and they'll tell you what to buy. There's a few of you around, I know. And then if that's too hard and you just can't be bothered, just don't buy anything at all. Just stop buying stuff, right? Or if you really have to buy something, buy it secondhand. Borrow it from someone. That's ethical. Just keep the stuff you already have and fix it if it's broken. There are a lot of alternatives. And I guess the bigger picture, what I'm really getting at here is that if we are going to follow Jesus, it requires of us that we think about how we live. That's kind of the big, big picture in James. He's saying, don't just wander through life with your eyes shut. Don't just do what your friends or your neighbors or the ads on TV tell you to do. Think about it. Make a conscious decision about how you're going to live so that you're living for Jesus. Which leads us neatly to the second last bit where he talks about luxury and self-indulgence. That's a good link. I think that's, that's a big issue in our world. Just buying things for the sake of it because they look nice, because they make us feel good in the moment. And I think James is pushing us to consider our motives. Do you buy things to get a brief bit of pleasure, to feel special, maybe even to feel superior to others that you have the best, you have the nice car or the nice clothes? I buy the best because I can and others can't. Is not a very Jesus-like attitude, is it, really? Actually, it reminds us of these people. It reminds James of these people, the Jewish leaders who killed Jesus. 
who condemned and murdered the innocent one. It's like it pops into his head. He's halfway through his rant about rich people and he goes, you know what you're like? You're like these rich people that condemned and murdered the innocent one, Jesus, our Jesus. It's a stark, harsh, emotional, (laughs) emotionally charged contrast that he's drawing. Do you want to live like Jesus or do you want to live like the people who murdered Jesus? Ouch. It's not easy to hear, is it? What are your values? What are your priorities? Whose lifestyle does your life most resemble? Whose heart is most like your heart? Do you love money? Do you worry about money? Do you want to have more so you can buy more, so you can feel good? Or do you love God? Maybe another question is to ask, do you love yourself? Do you love indulging your desires? Do you love feeling special because of what you can afford to buy? Or do you love others? Do you love those who make the things that you enjoy, even if those people live across oceans? Not that there aren't slaves in Australia, but you know what I'm getting at. It should be hard. I found it hard. I found it hard to write this sermon. (laughs) It's kind of almost shocking. It's uncomfortable. So I think we need to finish where we started, where James started. Back a few verses in chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. I think it's so easy at this point to just feel helpless, to feel condemned. I mean, James's words, his tone is condemning rich people. And if we get caught up in that, uh, I'm worried uh, that we'll just feel helpless and powerless and downtrodden by the whole thing. And I don't actually think that is James's intention. Whoever the rich people are in his head, whatever is motivating him to write this way about them, everything else in James's letter gives me the impression that on his heart, he, wants, he just wants to wake us up. He just wants to bring us back to Jesus. And so, these famous words, I think, might help us. He says, and maybe this is what you want to do this morning, having heard that sermon, having read these words, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and, here's the promise, he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So let's pray. Lord, it is hard. It's hard to look at ourselves in a mirror and see that The way that we live and the way that we act and the way that we think and the way that we feel doesn't match up. And Lord, 
Uh, We praise you and we thank you for these promises. That as we draw near to you in our humility, in our submission, Lord, that you come near to us. Lord, that you do not hold us at arm's length as something to be rejected or despised. Lord, that you hold us close, that you love us as a good father. Lord, as we humble ourselves before you, we praise you that you promise to lift us up. Lord, and we come on our knees and we come feeling helpless. Lord, we need lifting. And Lord, I pray uh, that you would do that. Lord, that we would feel enabled and empowered uh, to do something, to do even something small, to start somewhere with the way that we live and and the the luxury and the self-indulgence that we find ourselves caught up in uh, and the the systems of, of slavery and exploitation that we find ourselves caught up in. Lord, we acknowledge the aspects of that that are our fault and Lord, we, we, we mourn the aspects of that that we don't seem to be able to do anything about. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done in this broken world. And Lord, teach us, show us, guide us, Lord, that we might live better than our neighbours, that we might live more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. To continue the conversation, we invite you to join us Sundays at 9.30am and 5pm or on our website at www.nvbc.info.